Hello and welcome to the WAMDA podcast. My name is Triska Hamid and I'm the editor at WAMDA. This month, I had the pleasure to speak with Mudassir Sheikha, one of the founders of Karim, arguably the region's most successful startup. Alongside Magnus Olsen, the pair founded the company in 2012 in the UAE, initially as a transportation service for the corporate world. But it soon became the premier ride-hailing service in the Middle East, and within four years grew to become the region's first tech unicorn. In March 2019, US-based Uber acquired Karim in a deal worth $3.1 billion. It was an exit unlike any other and marked a seminal moment for the Middle East startup ecosystem. For Mudassir, the exit was merely the closure of Karim's first chapter, and he is now pursuing the company's second chapter, that is, horizontal growth, the launch of its super app, and creating a company that inspires and eases life for the region. In this podcast, I spoke with Mudassir about his role, how it changed over the years, and the wider implications of the super app strategy. Thank you, Mudassir, for joining us on this session. I'm very excited. Same here. Thank you for inviting me. This is actually the time I usually wake up. Are you an early morning person? I am a morning person as well. So uh, I generally get up, uh, depending on the day, 4 a.m., 5 a.m. And then uh, the first few hours of the day are thinking time to make sure that I'm not simply reacting to everything that's happening around me, but can at least proactively do things as well. Well, they do say that the successful people are the early risers. (laughs) I think both both uh, ways work, uh, but for me, uh, one of the first things I do, of course, I pray in the morning and then uh, I actually look at my task list. Uh, the task list, of course, is uh, ever growing and uh, I just go through the task list, identify things that I need to focus on today and uh, as much as possible, I start acting on those things and I do that every day because so many things come up, priorities keep on changing. So unless I review that list every day and reprioritize almost on a daily basis, I feel that I'm not working on the most important things. And so by the time everybody else wakes up, you've probably done half a day's worth of work already. Yeah, something like that. And what time do you finish work? Yeah, these days, of course, uh, there are no boundaries. Well, there were never any boundaries, but uh, yesterday, last call was until 10 p.m. Today, I think the last call is until 8 p.m. So it ranges between... uh, uh, seven, eight to sometimes a bit later. I think the people who think it's a very glamorous life can see that it's definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's fun. In, it's fun in many ways. Yeah, it's actually fun, uh, but maybe not glamorous. I think you use the right word. So I'm quite keen to get an understanding of how your role changed as the company grew. But first, whose idea was it to found Karim? Was it you or Magnus? So this particular idea was... Uh, was uh, was one that I came up with, but uh, but the inspiration to do something meaningful and do something big was Magnus's idea. So we actually decided to do something before we had the idea, and uh, we literally left our jobs and said, "Let's find something that can become big and something can be meaningful." And then we looked at a bunch of ideas. We looked at ideas in education, healthcare, things that actually felt more meaningful, and then we stumbled on this idea. Uh, based on our own experiences as consultants in the region. Every time you travel to Riyadh or Jeddah or Kuwait, you'd struggle finding reliable transport. So we discussed this idea. We uh, understood this problem really, really well. But we weren't sure how meaningful this would be 
moving consultants and other people from point A to point B until uh, we really uh, understood the impact this would have on the lives of captains. Uh, many of them were from the subcontinent or poorer parts of the Arab world. And we realized that if we can put something in place that would give them more sort of continued source of uh, income uh, in a much hassle-free, reliable way, then this could really go a long way in improving their lives. So that's really when this idea started clicking as one that could be meaningful and also, of course, which can be big because the opportunity was quite big for transportation remains quite big in the region. Had you had an experience with entrepreneurship before that? Well, I had a few. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm a product of the, of the dot-com uh, bubble and, and bust in the, in the Silicon Valley back in 1999-2000. So I graduated at the height of the dot-com bubble and uh, you could not do much else uh, but join startups or do startups. So I joined a startup as, uh, I think it was employee number 11 in San Francisco. The company had raised $200 million in Series A funding, which even for that time was the largest Series A funding ever raised by a startup. And the plan was that uh, in nine months, we will go public on NASDAQ, all of us will become super rich, and then won't have to work for the rest of our lives. So that's really my first experience with uh, entrepreneurship and, uh, and startups back in uh, 2000. I'm assuming that didn't happen. <laughs> that, uh, that ended up uh, teaching us a lot of things. Um, but the experience was fantastic, right? We, uh, I spent three years uh, at that startup, really saw the startup go from a handful of people to thousands of people. We ended up acquiring a few companies. We, uh, we, we, we had a crazy focus on growth. And, uh, and, you know, we made many mistakes as well. Uh, and some of the mistakes that we made were around uh, optimizing for, for short-term growth. We weren't really uh, building it to last. You know, a lot of the uh, stuff was, let's show growth, let's go public, and then we'll deal with the rest. So uh, a lot of lessons from that startup were around how do you grow really, really fast, which was very, very positive. And then uh, the other big lesson was how do you build to last, right? Build the right foundations, build the right culture, build the right uh, long-term orientation that will, uh, that will drive uh, long-term success versus uh, shoot for intermediate milestones. Do you think that Kareem would have been as successful had you not had the, that experience? It's hard to say, right? There's so many things that go into uh, these things, right? Uh, yeah, some of those experiences help in, in how to grow fast and how to think super long-term uh, and not try to time things uh, like we were trying to do back then. You know, I had another experience after uh, that first uh, startup at another startup where we went after an opportunity that was... Uh, that was a real problem, but it wasn't a big problem. It was something that we were doing in the mobile application testing space. And uh, we did really well in that startup, but somehow we hit the ceiling quite quickly. Yani we could not grow beyond a certain point just because the market opportunity wasn't super big. So when we were looking at uh, ideas uh, that led into Kareem, we were uh, quite aware that uh, let's not go down a path which will, uh, which will see us hitting the ceiling in a few years. Let's go after an opportunity that of course is meaningful. That was the reason why we were doing it, but one that offered almost an infinite potential to keep on growing. So yes, some of those experiences in the past uh, led to uh, the idea that we pursued and in the way that we pursued it. But like most other entrepreneurial journeys, you need so much blessing, so much baraka, so much luck, in addition to everything that you do to, uh, to be successful. 
so yeah we had our share of those things happen to us as well and uh, and we're still early right i don't think we are there yet so we feel we are still in the first innings of this uh, of this journey let's go back to the very beginning i think when you guys first launched a lot of people rolled their eyes and thought oh, they're just copying uber but you guys did a lot better than uber and managed to create that brand loyalty in the region how did you do that did it go just beyond spending loads of money on marketing well we didn't have any money to spend on marketing in the first place so um and and the problem we were we were trying to solve a problem versus trying to copy a business model or copy an idea and the problem was very very personal to us since we had traveled the middle east uh, a fair bit as consultants and really seen the lack of reliable transport and also seen the problem from the eyes of the customers the passengers from the eyes of the the assistants that were making bookings for these passengers and also we had seen the problem from the eyes of the finance teams that had to manage the billings of all of these uh, requests uh, from from around the region so we understood the problem almost uh, from a 360 perspective and the first thing that we did was we really solved the problem for these companies who had people going around wanted reliable transport very high levels of customer service and uh, and had a sort of booking setup and a billing setup that was quite different than than a consumer so the problem that we solved was corporate travel in the region we weren't solving for the on demand transportation that we eventually became and what happened when we were building for that segment and that use case is that we did two things really really well reliability was a huge focus a car 5 minutes late uh, is 5 minutes too late uh, because the customers that we were serving were very very demanding they had very very tight schedules the expectations were super high on punctuality and reliability uh, and we did crazy things uh, to ensure reliability for example if a booking comes from some parts of dubai which are more difficult to navigate we would know this and we would tell the captain that the booking instead of saying it's at 9:15 we'd say the booking is at 9:10 for example so the captain would get there a little bit earlier which was better than getting there a little bit late right uh, and there were like 20 hacks like this that we did to make sure that the service was reliable and the second thing that we did was uh, when you do thousands of bookings every day some bookings every day will go wrong in some shape or form uh, and that's just the nature of the beast uh, that you're dealing with so when things went wrong we really went out of the out of our way to provide customer service we wrote handwritten notes we uh, delivered date boxes we wrote long learning reports uh, after every small failure to understand exactly what happened what we would do differently to make sure that this would never happen again and then we would share that with customers and basically say our fault this is what we are doing to make sure that this will never happen to you or anyone else again and we would give them a timeline by which we will do all of these things and so was this all automated in the beginning or was it all done manually largely manually largely manually uh, so uh, so look reliability and customer service were were things that we really really focused on to serve the customer segment that we were uh, serving and then uh, when others came into the market uh, that we had to compete with while they had a fancy app they had more money to spend on marketing they were uh, splashing their uh, their brand uh, everywhere we were just you know heads down delivering a more reliable service with much better customer service did that frighten you though well i it definitely uh, woke us up uh, and 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 some members of the team uh, did get intimidated uh, with the with the big big advantage they had on technology and on funding and on uh, operational excellence uh, 
But uh, but look, I had spent many years in the Silicon Valley before then, right? So from from a San Francisco lens or from a Silicon Valley lens, Dubai is very very far. Middle East is very very far, right? Uh, and yes, you may be in the Middle East, but are you really going to prioritize the Middle East? Are you really going to focus on the Middle East? Are you really going to understand the problems of this region and solve the problems of this region? Probably not. Right? It doesn't make any sense, right? You would focus on the US, you would focus on Europe, you'd focus on maybe places like China, India, which are big markets. And then you might think of uh, prioritizing the Middle East, right? And that may not happen because LATAM or something else will come first. Why is the Middle East so difficult? It's just the size of the opportunity on a global context is, uh, is not as big, right? Like for us, it's the biggest thing in the world. You know, there are 600 million people between Morocco and Pakistan. There is $1.8 trillion of consumer spend. But the size of uh, the US market, the size of Europe, the size of uh, India, China, LATAM are larger than us. So, so those are the things that you would focus on first. So it was actually uh, the, the entry of Uber in the Middle East was, was a godsend. It, uh, it really uh, made us a lot sharper in our execution. Uh, it put a new urgency uh, on on getting things done. It also made us focused. Let's not do all the things that we thought we could do, but let's really focus on the things that would set us apart and help us uh, win. And it also educated the uh, the investors and and the market about uh, the Middle East, about this opportunity. If Uber is coming, this must be an interesting opportunity. Made our fundraising a bit easier. Made it also challenging in certain ways because everyone was afraid to uh, bet against Uber, which had a reputation for being super, super aggressive. But net net, uh, I actually strongly believe that if Uber had not entered the Middle East and, and you know, let's even ignore the exit that has happened. If Uber had not entered the Middle East, Kareem would not have become what it became. We have a lot to be grateful uh, to Uber for, for creating the competition, creating the awareness and uh, really expanding the opportunity for everyone. How did your role as a co-founder change as you were growing, as you were scaling and hiring more people? Yeah, it, it feels like a blur, frankly. <laughs> but, um, but there are probably a few distinct uh, stages uh, and, and types of roles, right? The first uh, stage was uh, you're doing everything yourself, right? Um, I was writing SQL queries. Uh, Magnus uh, was the SQL expert. Uh, I was picking up phone calls from customers. I was doing sales calls to corporate customers. I was hiring, I was fundraising, you know, you do everything in the beginning, right? And, uh, and it's actually great because you then learn the business at the, at the minutest uh, level of detail, which is actually uh, super helpful because then as you're managing teams that are doing those things, you, you have the insight to guide them and steer them. So in the very beginning, and maybe that lasted for the first two years, uh, it was hands-on, doing things myself, and uh, or making sure that I'm working very, very closely with people who are doing things. And at the beginning, we didn't even have capital to attract a lot of senior people, right? We could only attract very, very junior people, and we just had to be very, very uh, close to them and guiding them what to do. I think at some point, uh, we were able to attract um, some leaders uh, that were running our cities, that were running different functions. And, and then the role uh, evolved a bit uh, to making sure that you were, you know, you were managing and leading these people in the best possible way. So, you know, you were still I was still responsible for, of course, things that only I could do, such as fundraising, um, such as, uh, you know, setting the vision, you know, I would push uh, the teams with crazy targets. Um, and then I would uh, do, you know, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly sessions with all of them to understand what they were doing 
and then try and steer the direction of what they were doing. But I was still very much in the problem solving seat, right? I was, I was the problem solver. Uh, I had a team uh, and Magnus uh, and I were both sort of in the seat where we were working out with others to solve the problems and drive things forward. So that was probably the second phase. And then there was a very interesting uh, discussion that I had with, uh, with a professor from HBS who had written a case on Kareem. Uh, the case I think was called uh, Raising a Middle East uh, Unicorn. Um, and, and we asked him to come and visit us and speak to all our leaders. We were having scaling challenges. And uh, after speaking to all our leaders for, for two days, I sat down with him and he uh, shared his uh, very, very open observation. And he said, uh, Madhasar, your role uh, at Kareem needs to change and needs to change very, very quickly. From all the discussions that I'm having with people, it seems that you're very much still solving problems. And at the scale that you're at, you cannot be solving problems. You have to start solving people and people will solve problems. So you need to have a very, very radical shift in the role that you're playing at Kareem to make sure that Kareem can go to the next level. So firstly, how did you take that? And was it just delegation or was it more than that? Not just delegation in the sense that, you know, people were doing things on their own. I wasn't like micromanaging people, but I was probably the, the master problem solver. Every week we would sit down hey, this is what's happening in Jatta. This is what we are doing. This is what we're running into. This is what competition is doing. And then we would problem solve and I would be part of that problem solving. And then we'd solve the problem together and say, okay, this is what we should do, right? And I was very, very engaged in problem solving. I was enjoying it. This is something that uh, was in my comfort zone. I knew the business really well. And that's what I was doing every day in, in every city, in every function, in every uh, every meeting, right? And And that you know, it turned out that people felt that I was too close to the problem, right? I wasn't uh, back enough. I wasn't asking the question, do we have the right people with the right skill set playing the right roles? Is the organization structure the right structure for the next phase of growth? Do we have the right cultural values? Are we evolving the values in the right direction? That was a blind spot, right? That wasn't getting done. And, and maybe that was okay to not get done for the first, let's say, three or four years. But at the stage we were at back then, it had to become more important. So then there was a shift that uh, I went through. I got a chief of staff uh, who then uh, helped me focus on those topics, right? We wrote what we call the Kareem OS, which basically defined the Kareem way of doing things. It was built on our values, but it really became sort of the, the Kareem way. And we published it. We did roadshows with the rest of the organization to, to make sure that everyone understood it, everyone engaged with it. Then we more proactively started evolving the way we were organized. We more critically started looking at the people in Kareem, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, what roles would they play best, and, and so on and so forth. So the role did change. Was it easy for you to transition from being the problem solver to solving people? Yeah, it wasn't easy and it's still not done. Uh, I'm still, uh, you know, playing a, a little bit of both. And sometimes uh, I go one extreme here, sometimes I go one extreme there. So I, I think I still need to find my my place. I mean, this comes into the skill set in the region. How do you manage people or how, how do you solve the problem of people here? I've boiled it down at a high level to people that are aligned with our purpose and people that are capable. And, and capability can be in different things uh, in, in different places. But for me, at my level, when I look at my leadership team, one of the most important things is, is this person aligned with our long-term purpose? Because if that alignment is in place, it creates a very, very special 
attachment to the brand. It creates a special attachment to the purpose. It brings a lot of resilience. It brings a lot of passion. There is nothing that can replace or substitute for that purpose alignment. And if you have that at the very top, then it flows down. Right. If you have purpose-aligned leaders, then they'll make sure that the people that they hire are purpose-aligned and, and so on and so forth. So one of the first things that I look for is, uh, is purpose alignment. So every interview that we do for any director and above, I'm doing these interviews myself. And the one thing that I'm looking for is, is this per person aligned with our purpose of simplifying the lives of people in this region and building an awesome organization that inspires? If the answer is yes, then now let's look at capability, right? And capability is more nuanced, uh, is like, what are their strengths and what are their weaknesses? What are the strengths that we need for the role that we're discussing? For certain roles, you need creative, crazy people, right? For other roles, you need, you know, process-oriented people. And, uh, you know, I've never been very good at it, but I'm learning uh, how to understand these skills a bit better uh, and then trying to find the the best uh, fit between people's strengths and weaknesses and and uh, and then um, what the role needs. Of course, it's not easy at all, right? Because a lot of people have their own perceptions of their strengths and weaknesses, which might be different from your perceptions of their strengths and weaknesses. So some people are more open, they get it, they uh, understand and they adapt. Uh, some people, they're awesome, they're purpose aligned, but somehow there, there's a mismatch in perception of strengths and weaknesses, and then it's very, very difficult to uh, keep, them, keep them excited, and, uh, and then we sometimes lose them. But that's okay, that's part of the journey. You know, you have a core group that is purpose aligned, is super capable, assigned to the right roles at the right time, and then the rest flows. I think it's quite a testament to Karim and your identifying of, of skills that there's now a Karim Mafia and, you know, several former Karim employees have gone on to start their own successful startups or are on their way to becoming successful startups. Yeah, super exciting. How does it feel when you lose them? <laughs> it's actually, uh, we feel quite proud overall that uh, it, it has happened from from Kareem in some shape or form. And if you look at the, the purpose of Kareem, if you break it down, what it boils down to is uh, we would love to uplift the region at scale by simplifying lives so that people have the ability to think of big things and do those big things versus get stuck in the daily friction of life. And by building an awesome organization that inspires so that people build that belief and confidence that they can go out and do those big things. So when someone comes to me and says, hey, I want to leave Kareem and I want to do my own thing, the discussion is a very, very simple one. I sometimes, Many times I don't even try to retain them because look, if you want to do amazing things in the region, that's fantastic. Let us know how we can help you uh, with those things. Uh, but if you come to me and say, hey, I want to go and, go and join something else, then that's a slightly uh, more difficult conversation. Why not Kareem, right? Why some other place? And you know, everyone has their reasons. Sometimes they... They want to go out and do other things. But in, in some cases, I've been able to convince them that like you should go out and do something on your own versus go and join another startup or another business uh, that may not be uh, that not, may not be great for you. But although overall, we're very proud of what's happened in the ecosystem from all of our ex-colleagues. And uh, we are actually in the process of launching an alumni program that uh, hopefully will bring these colleagues together in some forum that we can interact and learn from each other. You speak a lot about you know, the long-term aim. Was the long-term always to, to be acquired or did you have some other 
long-term plan? So uh, the aim was never to get acquired. Um, it, it, well, let's take a step back, right? So the, the objective is to build a lasting institution from the region, is, is to build something that is going to be amazing, uh, that's going to be the home of the best talent in the region, and that's going to make an impact at scale in the region, not just in our lifetime, but even beyond our lifetimes and hopefully decades and centuries to come. So the objective is to build a lasting institution that will keep on inspiring the region. Now, whether our investors are the investors that we had pre-acquisition or post-acquisition, it's really a question of the cap table. What is important is that we keep our keep our purpose, we keep our brand identity, we keep our culture, we keep our values, we keep our sense of direction and whether our shares are held by this person or that person or someone else is, is a bit irrelevant. So the acquisition from our standpoint is uh, was not an objective. It is a milestone that has happened, which uh, we believe was the right thing to do, both uh, for many of the people that uh, entrusted us with money. We understood that not doing this acquisition for our own egos and wanting to keep driving this would have been a little bit irresponsible for the for the dividends this this acquisition could have done for the ecosystem, which it has, and inshallah more will come. But uh, for the most part at Kareem, uh, you know, not too much has changed, right? We're still running this independently. We're still driving it with the same purpose. And in fact, running even faster than we were running uh, before, because now we can be a little bit more long-term oriented than we were before when we had to go out and raise money every six months. Before we switch this conversation to COVID and the super app that you guys have launched, I want to get a sense of, I mean, you're from Pakistan and the world has become very aware of prejudice and privilege and racial tensions. Did you ever feel, you know, people saw you differently because you're from Pakistan? That's a great question. Um, yes, I think the, the short answer is yes. Um, it didn't bother me though. And I understood uh, where some of those uh, biases were coming from. So. Yes, of course, there are some biases and uh, we all wish that those biases didn't exist. Uh, but for the most part, I feel that uh, if you are from Pakistan or some other part of the world that may not be looked upon at the same in the same way as some others, you know, you can still achieve uh, almost anything that you can achieve in any other part of the world. But where it did uh, bother me was how our um, our captains, uh, who are also largely from Pakistan and the rest of the subcontinent, would sometimes get treated. And, and, you know, we used to call them drivers before. And one of the main reasons we changed the term from drivers to captains was to give them more respect, was to elevate them in the eyes of the customers and others, but also to build a, a slightly higher self-esteem self in them. You know, I sometimes get calls from captains and they say, this is Captain Ali, this is Captain Tariq. And you can sense this, uh, this pride in them with, uh, with that new title that, that wasn't before. And customers now also refer to them as captains, which is, uh, which is something that they, they really find very respectful and, uh, and encouraging. So, okay, let's let's talk about COVID. It's, it's been quite a dark time for the majority of people. There were some startups that benefited. You guys said the business had been down about 80%, I think it was. What overall impact did it have on Kareem? I mean, you had to let go of a lot of people. So if we can talk a little bit about that and Kareem's response. Yeah, we, uh, we of course, uh, got hit uh, by the crisis. Cities got shut down, you know, 
we were moving people around in cities and now people are not moving around. So there was definitely an impact. And more than the impact on Kareem, uh, it really impacted our, our captains uh, who, uh, who don't have the same sort of financial muscle to bear that uh, impact that, that we had at Kareem. So one of the first things that we did was uh, let's make sure that we can protect uh, our captains and protect Kareem. Uh, so a lot of things were done, you know, paid sick leave, captain relief fund, you know, arranging affordable healthcare for captains and so on and so forth. So that really became a priority for us at the very beginning. And what became a second priority was how do we protect Kareem with a massive uh, hit on uh, the top line uh, through this crisis. So we had to make some uh, tough calls. One of them was to, you know, reduce the size of the organization a bit. But that was, let's say, March and April to some extent. Where we are now, we uh, are in a very, very different mindset. We are in a very different place. Uh, the business is recovering strongly, faster than we expected. And if you look at uh, the way that we adapted uh, in, in this crisis, a lot of focus was put on deliveries. The Super App, which was expected to come out a bit later, we accelerated the launch of the Super App. There is a, a big focus on making sure that we're serving our customers when they're stuck at home with almost everything they might need from the offline world through the Super App. So we played defense for the first couple of months of the crisis, and that had to be done given the magnitude of the impact. But we are now in full uh, offense mode. We are viewing this crisis as an incredible opportunity. The digital transformation of the region that uh, will simplify the lives of people in this region significantly is going to accelerate. Things that would have happened in 2025 are going to happen in 2021 now. And uh, as one of the leading digital players in the region, uh, having the customer engagement, having the ability to build technology at scale, having an operating footprint in the 15 countries that we operate in really puts us in a very, very strong position to take advantage of this faster digital adoption. And uh, we believe that the Super App is an incredible manifestation of our purpose and one that will not just help Kareem grow, but uh, will help the region uh, take advantage of this, uh, this big, big change that's happening at scale in the region. Before we talk a bit more about the Super App, how do you see the pandemic impacting the future of mobility? People now feel a bit more comfortable owning their own private cars rather than renting or taking taxis. So where do you think the, the future of mobility lies? The, 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 the pandemic will definitely bring some changes in, in the behavior of people that will last beyond the pandemic. You know, some people will work from home a bit more uh, than go to the office every day. There will be some more private cars from people that can afford it and so on and so forth. But if you really look at our business and where we are in the, in the larger mobility opportunity, we're still super, super early. You know, our estimate is that we are literally at one point some percent of the larger mobility of people opportunity in this region. So yes, if the market shrinks from let's say 100% to 80% as a result of some of these changes, we still have a long way to grow from that 1% to that uh, 80%. So we're all super early in the, in the digital mobility space, uh, if you were to call it that. And there's a lot of innovation that needs to happen from this point on to get more and more people comfortable with using us and platforms like us for more and more things as part of their daily lives. Let's talk about the Super App now. You guys launched it uh, not too long ago. Kareem users who are now opening their app, they'll see 
all the services under one roof. How is this bigger than just one app that offers several services? Yeah, yeah. It's the simplicity of the super app is uh, is 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 maybe uh, deceiving a little bit. So let's let's talk about what the super app does for the customer, and then what does it do for the larger ecosystem? So, what does the super app do? The super app basically in one app now gives you the ability to access multiple services. Currently, you see the services that we offered or we have offered through other apps. But over time, you'll start seeing a lot more services from others come onto the Super app as well. So there's a huge benefit around convenience. You don't have to have multiple logins. You can have your payment option, payment uh, methods in one place. That uh, that app knows your locations, knows your history, uh, so it can easily you know help you get things delivered or otherwise. So you just have to manage these things in one place versus having to manage these things in. 10 places or 20 places. So there is a big, big convenience angle to it. The second angle that you will see uh, come to life in a slightly bigger way is, uh, is that we have had this loyalty program that rewards people for using our services. So as you get more and more services on the platform, customers will start getting more value um, from doing more things on the Kareem uh, Super App. So there will be some value to the loyalty program and getting more and more things through Kareem. That's the second benefit. And the third benefit, which which is not obvious, but you'll start to see it more and more, is it's not easy to build a reliable consumer service in our region. And let's not get fooled by what we see in Dubai and the UAE, where the infrastructure is relatively stable, very, very sound and quite uh, advanced. In, in many of our countries, you know, infrastructure is not where uh, infrastructure doesn't allow you to deliver reliable services at scale. And what the super app does for the developer ecosystem in our region is it basically gives them an opportunity to leverage everything that Kareem has built over the last eight years and build on top of it. So I'll give you basic examples. So when we started uh, Kareem, we started in Dubai, UAE, and then we expanded to other parts of the region. You would think that signing up with an SMS gateway would allow you to send an SMS to everyone in the region. Sounds like a basic need. You can tap into an SMS gateway and then from that point on, you can send messages to people in Saudi, Morocco, Pakistan, Egypt, everywhere. But guess what? Because of different rules and other things, you need that doesn't work as reliably as you would think. So now you have to do basically do is like go and sign up SMS gateway here, SMS gateway here, SMS gateway here. You're basically signing up 15, 20 SMS gateways that now your service needs to work with depending on the country it needs to send the message to. The same goes for payment system. The same goes for things like uh, you know call masking, locations, and so on and so forth. The region is very very fragmented. Is that unique to the region? It's it's, it's quite unique to the region because when you what has happened is that. If, you know, I built startups in the US and what happens is when you're building a startup in, in a place like the US, there are services that you can sign up for that give you these things. So in the US, for example, you can sign up to Twilio and you'll get all of these things with one one integration and that's done. Uh, you can sign up with, uh, with Stripe and you'll be able to process payments of all kinds, right? You can sign up with uh, another service where you can pay money to anyone's bank account, right? In, in one... These services exist and the infrastructure to build uh, consumer services is more advanced, uh, way more advanced than in our region. And many of these services 
have expanded globally, but somehow they've not all come to the Middle East yet, right? It's, 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 it's a journey. And, and so what ends up happening is you're building a consumer service, you need all of these other services to be reliable and to work, but many of these services don't exist. So what do you have to do? You have to start building these services yourself. Now you build the service in the UAE first, then you go to Saudi, then you go to Egypt, then you go to Morocco. You have to build all of these things again. So you almost have to be more vertically integrated to build these services in our region than you do in many other parts of the world. So the, what I'm trying to get to is the super app is not just a way that you as a customer can get multiple services in one place. The super app is our way to make it easy for people to build services that you need. So now a startup that is, you know, a, a, a set of a, a team that is starting a business in Egypt, who now wants to expand to Saudi or wants to expand to Morocco, wants to expand to Pakistan, can integrate with integrate on the Kareem super app, use many of the services that we have built, and now expansion into other markets is much, much faster than doing it organically on your own, like the way Kareem did it. So what we do hope the super app will do, yes, it will make your life a bit easier from a convenience standpoint, from a value standpoint, but it will unleash a host of new services to get developed much faster that you and many other customers need to lead their lives in a much simpler way in the region. And your recent partnership with Visa, how does that tie into all of that? So the Visa partnership uh, is, uh, is mainly targeted at our captains uh, because, um, you know, we're trying to bridge the offline world with the online world because the offline world in our region is largely unreliable, except for, again, a few countries. You go to the offline world, sometimes, you know, you get stuck in traffic, sometimes you haggle for something, sometimes you get the right thing, sometimes you don't get the right thing, you go to return that thing, they don't accept it. Unfortunately, the offline world is, is, is inefficient, it's unreliable for the most part. So what we are doing basically is that we're trying to bridge that, break that offline world uh, available in a more reliable way through our app in the online world. And one of the big elements of making that happen is our captains, right? Is the logistics and the last mile delivery capability that we have built, uh, which is available throughout the region. For that captain to actually go and do things for you in the offline world, that captain needs some currency. You ask him to go to the store and buy something for you. That person will need to pay for that thing. And then somehow that payment will come from your credit card or your thing, right? So we need to give this person some way to spend money on your behalf somehow. So the, the visa partnership, what basically it allows us to do is allows us to equip our captains with a payment option that not just allows them to get their earnings instantly, but also allows them to spend on your behalf and that settlement uh, can happen more seamlessly and your experience as a customer to avail services in the offline world through that captain really gets a massive upgrade. This is an ecosystem that you're building and it kind of puts you into several sectors. I mean, you're on your way to becoming a marketplace, a financial technology player. What are the wider implications? Is, is Kirin going to be accelerating digital access for both the consumer and also the, the business size? For sure, right? It, it will happen if you, if you bring compelling services that are reliable at the right price point, then that will drive the broader adoption of digital in the region. And, and one can just look at Pakistan. When we started in Pakistan uh, five years ago, the data adoption was not incredibly high at that time. 
um, and you know we had to to a larger extent in Pakistan than in some other countries we had to offer our services uh, it, 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 at, at more compelling value for people to first uh, get smartphones and if they had smartphones get data plans because they wanted to use the service and this was a problem in their lives right and once they got that basic infrastructure of a smartphone and a data plan and they use cream now they're ready to start consuming other services as well so yes if we can make more and more services available to you that solve your needs then naturally this will create an incentive for you to become more digitally aware and adopt these digital services for sure we've seen the other super apps around the world in china and in indonesia they have the regulatory and government backing because it requires the regulatory approvals this is notoriously difficult in our part of the world how are you guys tackling that so uh, the one place that you do need regulatory support is uh, is on the financial services side if you need those e money licenses that are required to do some of the things that we would like to do on the super app you need uh, those approvals Uh, but other than that yes you need some approvals to offer a ride hailing service to offer delivery services and to offer some of the services those are relatively easy uh, i mean there's a lot of work because the region is quite fragmented you need to go to 20 places versus two places to get those licenses but uh, it is relatively sorted on the on the fintech side on the e money side this is um, where a lot of our efforts are being spent so some countries have Uh, regulations that we can apply to and 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 we can get those licenses over time uh, some countries are still early and uh, those li- those licensing frameworks have not been put in place or you have to partner with uh, local banks to um, to do the things that that you want to do so we are in talks with most governments at this point to um, to both either get the licenses or to support them in an advisory uh, role to help draft those regulations that can help us do some of the things that will accelerate the super app journey. Let's end on startups and entrepreneurship. How do you think the the sector has evolved and where do you think it's headed? The future is very very bright. Do you think it's easier to launch a startup today compared to when you started? I would like to think so, yes. Uh, and it it's easier for two main reasons, right? I mean, what do you need to to grow a business? You need money and you need talent. And uh it's very very clear that raising money today is much easier than it was 8 years ago there is many many more options uh, that you can raise money from a lot of money has been raised by these venture capital firms and that money is getting deployed every day right every day we hear about companies getting funded when we started this was every 6 months you you'd hear of a company getting funded right so the landscape has changed dramatically on the funding side so that's become a lot easier and the second thing that also become easier is access to talent uh, when we started uh, in 2012 uh, the smartest people in our region did not want to work at startups they wanted to work at goldman mckinsey these large uh, companies and uh, it was uh, it was very very painful to convince them uh, to even consider a startup but after some of the exits that have happened that shift has happened as well to a large extent where more and more of our best people are 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 open are excited and eager to work at startups or do startups and if you can get funding and if you can get talent the rest is uh, is much easier right those are the two sort of building blocks that you need 
for any successful enterprise. And to finish off, what would be your top three tips for someone who's thinking of starting a business now? I think the first one is obvious. Uh, solve a problem. Make sure that uh, you understand the problem and focus on solving that problem. Don't uh, look elsewhere and simply try to copy something from somewhere because um, that someone is going to come to the region and if you're not solving a problem but simply trying to imitate someone, you'll only go so far. So make sure that you really understand the problem, are very, very close to your customers and keep iterating the answer based on the local problem that you're solving. Second would be uh, move, uh, move incredibly fast. There are times when I talk to people and they tell me that they've been working on something for six months, working on something for, for a year. And, uh, and I don't think that works. You have to launch quickly, give something to customers, let them use it, let them give you feedback, and then run much, much faster. So don't waste time building something for months, uh, build something for weeks, launch it, and then iterate uh, rapidly. Uh, I'll make it four tips if that's okay, Trishka. Third would be get the right people on board, uh, especially uh, early colleagues, uh, early investors. You may not realize it, but they will probably, they will most likely have a large influence on the direction that you end up taking. So uh, when you raise money or when you hire early uh, colleagues, make sure that they're aligned with your purpose in some shape or form. Uh, they are in it for the right reasons. Because if they're not, then at some point or the other, at, at a time that you don't want to, conflicts will start emerging and, and then you'll add unnecessary risk to the business uh, uh, through, the, through the journey. So that's the third. And fourth, uh, you know, we got super lucky at the beginning of Kareem because of uh, Magnus's uh, brain surgery that uh, we started with, uh, with a very clear idea of Kareem's purpose. And uh, as much as possible, make sure that there is a purpose identified early that is the reason why you're doing what you're doing and make sure that you share it with others that are joining you and make sure that they're excited about it as well. And if they are excited and the purpose is exciting, inspirational, then it'll make the journey a lot more fun and a lot more rewarding. Great. Well, thank you, Modestia, very much for your time. Thank you, Trisha. Take care. Thanks to Modestia and thanks to you for listening. You can listen to all of our podcasts on wonder.com or through your podcast provider.